or on 94.1 KPFA. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, today is December the 9th. I was looking at the original German of that song, my theme song. It's fascinating. It's, uh, of course, the 1955 Production of Bertolt Brecht's three-penny opera, A Whiff of Weimar, you know, when the Nazis were gearing up to move on us. Um, and I like the line, the line, it's uh, at the end, it's the very end of three-penny opera. And it says, drop the shadows out of sight, you know. Uh, the original German, of course, says, those in darkness drop from sight which is an entirely different uh, interpretation, if you think about it. It, of course, relates to the homeless. I want to start today with a poem by Julia Vinograd. Uh, before I get around to talking about angels in America, I'm sure you've heard a lot about that. It's been on all the other stations, yes. <laughs> it's the, the television hit of the year. But to lead into angels in America... I like this poem by Julia Vinograd called Statue of Liberty. In Angels in America, we zero in on that beautiful angel. In New York, you know, the statue, and then, of course, the statue comes to life and looks at us with this sadness in her eyes. And I thought of Julia's picture of the statue of Liberty, the mother of us all. Julia Vinograd, of course, is our local poet lady. We call her the Bubble Lady on Telegraph Avenue. She writes, The Statue of Liberty passed on her torch to stand-ins, Greek nymphs teasing satyrs, Roman virgins lifting a crown for Caesar, anyone willing to flatter and burn the Statue of Liberty is tired. We've worn her out. Just the other day I saw her on a bus in one of those reserved for the elderly front seats. Her clothes sagged on her like any other respectable lady who shops at goodwill. The Statue of Liberty clutches a large bag of laundry and a bag of kitty litter. Cats don't make promises and so can't disappoint. She held a little black vinyl purse, awkwardly shifting it around. Uh, her hands weren't used to it. Inside her purse is a postcard of what she used to look like and a wallet where the words from her pedestal fold like money. 
but no money, no checks, no credit cards. Glasses on the Statue of Liberty's blinking eyes that see so much less than the stone hollows staring over the harbor. You could tell she tried makeup on her face but washed it off indignantly. A few smears are left. She won't fit in. And without her, neither will we. <laughs> Late in the um, uh, play, Angels in America, that is late in the first half, I've only seen the first three hours as a total of six, one of the ancestors, um, the, the uh, what is it, I think he's probably 17th or early 18th century ancestor, takes a look around and he says, the 20th century, oh God, the world's got so terribly, terribly old. Indeed, indeed, the play, of course, is set in 1985 in the Reagan era. Uh, <laughs> I hope that you all get a chance to see it and that you come to the Cape Yafé Holiday Crafts Fair and we can discuss it. Uh, the second half is airing Sunday night the 14th. I can go home after the Holiday Crafts Fair and watch the second half and see how it turns out. Uh, anyway, I do hope some of you come to the fair this weekend. I'll be there Saturday and Sunday both. It's 10 to 6, the 13th and 14th of December. It's at the Concourse in San Francisco. I'm on the ground floor just to the left, uh, not too far past the entrance there at the foot of the stairs. If you look left, there I am. I'll be selling some CDs and tapes and good things like that. Um, it's the only chance I get to listen to KPFA listeners. There's a gentleman who usually comes and tells me that since he has to listen to me all year, I should have to listen to him for a change. <laughs> that makes good sense. You come, you talk, I'll take notes. In any case, I get a, uh, a lot of therapy. Uh, I call it, what is that? Retail therapy or aesthetic therapy out of the fair mainly because of all the art. It's really quite beautiful, all those crafts, the textiles, the glass. Uh, I think that in these sad times, it really helps a lot to have something beautiful to look at. What is that line? Yes, be with me, beauty, for the fire is dying. That was my mother's favorite. Yes, she would put her hand to her forehead and say something like that. Yes. This year, I'm going to buy a cake of soap because I heard uh, Andrea Lewis on the morning show today. She said that she had a uh, Venus of Willendorf cake of soap. She was interviewing the craftswoman who made it. And you know the Venus of Willendorf. It's that prehistoric, rather rotund woman. And I remember that years and years ago... The first time I went to the crafts fair, I bought a cookie cutter, uh, 
little cookie cutter in the shape of the Venus of Willendorf. Uh, most precious item. <laughs> anyway, this week, in order to get a little retail therapy or aesthetic therapy, I bought a book of illustrations from children's books. There were 13 Victorian illustrators, and I do recommend this book. I found it uh, for only $20, marked down from 50 It's a treasury of the great children's book illustrators by Susan Mayer, M-E-Y-E-R. It's basically a picture book, of course, but she wrote 13 biographies of these Victorian artists. Uh, pretty terrible lives, most of them. Edward Lear is the oldest. He was an epileptic and so on. My favorite would be Arthur Rackham and Kay Nielsen, those uh, incredibly beautiful illustrations, you know, for the Hans Andersen fairy tales and so forth. Those of us who came of age before television, that is, before television was the, um, what is it, uh, the heart of the living room, the illustrations from those books that we read as children, those were overpowering. They they stained our souls, their memory gems. Uh, now, this book, this uh, treasury of illustrations is going to be my refuge for the holidays. Um, I also got a biography of Beatrix Potter. I'll save that for Christmas Day. Let's see, yes, the 25th for the morning show. We'll save that biography of Beatrix Potter for then. Let me give you the, the author in case you're interested. Her name is Elizabeth Buchan, B-U-C-H-A-N. And this little biography has the same publisher as Beatrix Potter, F. Farn and Company, W-A-R-N-E. The story of the creator of Peter Rabbit. It's a wonderful tale about a woman who, as soon as she earned money, she went out and bought more farms. And when she died, she left uh, 4,000 acres to the National Trust. She was an ecologist on a grand scale. She bought more and more land and uh, left it to uh, her posterity. What a wonderful woman to um, leave us not just her art, you know, but the real thing, the animals and the, the nature that she loved. Uh, fascinating. In any case, I did dig around at... Um, Mr. Mops, the children's bookstore, and uh, mostly they have toys. And I've found any number of uh, good things, not just those quirky tales of Peter Rabbit. I did want to tell you most people uh, know all about Beatrix Potter if they are lovers of children's books, but uh, the secret that is seldom revealed in the biographies is that, of course, Beatrix Potter wrote stories of naughty animals. These were, of course, naughty persons. And Victorian children had been raised on the pap or the pablum of, uh, oh, let's call it the religious tracts, the little, the little stories, um, uh, moral pamphlets, you know. They were dreadfully boring. And when Beatrix Potter came along, she let Peter Rabbit be extremely wayward. And that's why the books became so popular. Uh, my personal favorite is the tale of Jemima Puddleduck, 
That's the one about this dithering duck. She was so high-strung, she couldn't sit on her eggs long enough for them to hatch. And she gets into trouble with this fox, you know, and all kinds of problems. Anyway, uh, I do think that um, uh, Beatrix Potter is my best pick this year for children's books. I, I got my usual collection, let's see, the A.A. A. Milne poems, and there was a $20 basic set of uh, Winnie the Pooh books, and oh, one copy of The Wizard of Oz, and of course, a copy of Goodnight Moon, and Ferdinand the Bull, you know the list, and if you don't know the list, any sensible, sensible uh, librarian can tell you... Uh, I just like to retreat into a fantasy world at Christmas time, and uh, I try to share a little of that with uh, the children I know. Uh, there are children around who are patient enough to read quietly. Uh, picture books have that special feel, you know. They're so restful after all the video and TV, all that uh, overstimulating, that frantic... Uh, electronic stuff. I think during the holidays, it's so important to breathe, slow down, sit still. The first thing I do is get out the music. If there's enough uh, music for the children to listen to, it does help them. Tell them to lie down on the floor and listen. Uh, actually, most of the grown-ups I know do get themselves to the plays and the theater and the films at this time of year. Uh, I try to aim for the humanistic stuff. There so many guys pouring into that Tom Cruise picture, The Last Samurai. I was down at the theater the other day. and uh, I'll just, I'll point you to the New Yorker. The New Yorker tells us that uh, the Tom Cruise music movie is all about an American showing the Japanese how to be heroic, you know, the sort of thing. Oh, <laughs> Mostly, the New Yorker explains that the movie is about how perfectly run this feudal society uh, was back in, oh, what was it, Civil War days, the time of our Civil War. And uh, it makes Japan look like uh, the ideal social order. Yes, that's a social order, I believe, that led to World War II. Anyway, the only movie that I would out and out recommend uh, is Sylvia. It's an art film about the poet Sylvia Plath and her husband, Ted Hughes. Um, I've heard just too many complaints about this movie. Um, I was just really, really delighted that it was as good as it was. Uh, it doesn't try to do too much. It's a painterly picture. The visuals illustrate the poems. Uh, that's what cinematography is all about. The language of film... Uh, the colors are the colors of depression and of a very dark sensibility. Uh, now, the TV offering of the year, of course, is Angels in America. And I'm of about six minds because I think it's probably the best thing going, at least uh, the best thing I've seen all year. I watched it on HBO the first half. And uh, the second half is scheduled for this next weekend, Sunday, the 14th. It zeroes in on the zeitgeist, but 
what knocked me out was that um, I think, I think, well, I'm not going to say that it was better when I saw it 10 years ago. I think what happened 10 years ago is that it hit me harder then. There was more shock value. It was more um, apocalyptic. Um, I think it was in 1991, right, uh, it was the Eureka Theater here in San Francisco, and everyone told me that there was a new play by Tony Kushner that was going to take the top of our heads off, and indeed it did. Uh, I think perhaps the issue of AIDS was a little more uh, startling then. At least, you know, we hadn't uh, put it on stage. Uh, today, it seems that we've got quite used to AIDS as a, uh, what's the word, uh, background, texture of our lives, a problem that's become a condition, a global plague. Now, the play has evolved or changed over the past decade, and I can argue for hours about which bits got better and which bits I liked better the first time I saw it, but I think what happens is that television, television alters the special effects a lot. Um, and I don't think they came off quite right. You know how that is when an angel bursts through the roof. Um, that's very exciting and dramatic on a stage. But on screen, you know, you have to put in the sort of special effects that people are used to in the movies. And, and it doesn't quite work. What What works, what matters is the tone, the quality, the script by Tony Kushner and the Mike Nichols direction. Uh, the play gives the audience, I think, an astonishing portrait of our pain, the anguish of America, uh, well, at least the anguish of 1985, Reagan is in office, <laughs> the two guys sitting on a bench, I got to giggling listening to them, they were talking about Reagan's children and the four children, and I thought of the recent uh, TV show. Uh, the Reagans, in which we see that these four children are indeed um, products of neglect, sometimes benign neglect and not so benign. But uh, they, yes, one of the fellows says to the other, he says, uh, yes, uh, that he, he feels sorry for the children. How must it feel, he says, to be the son of America's animus, Ronald Reagan Never mind. Uh, Emma Thompson figures in Angels in America. She and Mike Nichols uh, seem to be a team. She plays a homeless psychotic in one scene. She plays a number of roles. This homeless psychotic is um, in the Bronx eating soup, she says. In the new century, I think we will all be insane yes indeed uh emma thompson also plays the the um, the archangel the descending ascending angel the millennial messenger from on high it's interesting she's cast also as the doctor uh the doctor of the character who is dying of aids prior the one who was visited by this angel and i thought oh that's the way it works yes um the doctor who's treating you at the time of your death, I always say, pick someone um, 
a doc whose face you you would be willing to look at, someone you might want to see in your final moments, in your fever dream. Um, actually, I think it's a little distracting that all these great actors insist on playing so many parts in the same movie. I think it's a bit show-offy. It distracts from the narrative. The object of doubling up on stage, you know, is to cut down on such a large cast, but in a film, surely there was money enough to pay um, actors. So many actors probably wanted to be in this show. Meryl Streep is always exceptional. Um, she's got uh, three roles in the first half. She plays Ethel Rosenberg. That is a terrific cameo. Quite haunting, in fact. I watched that scene three times. Uh, her rabbi was genuine, but I don't know. You know, it bothers me, the beard and so forth. Uh, I liked best the character of Pryor. He's played by Justin Kirk. I think he's the lead, um, not the other actor, the one who plays Joe. Anyway, Pryor Walter is a young man dying of AIDS in 1985. I loved most of all the prior priors, <laughs> his spectral ancestors. Um, he's a wasp. Uh, one of his ancestors dates from the Middle Ages, 32 or 34 generations back, depending on whether you count the bastards. And then there's one from the late... 17th or early 18th century, they come to keep him company in his delirium, in his fever dreams, because they too died of pestilence or plague. They call the plague the spotty monster or black jack. Uh, <laughs> the oldest finally figures out that gay, well, he doesn't really understand what gay means, but he, he finally understands that uh, Prior is a sodomite. Prior's hmm. fever dreams get all mingled and mixed up with the drug fantasies of Harper. She's a pill-popping woman married to a Mormon Republican from Utah. Uh, in their shared fantasies, Prior tells Harper that her husband is a homosexual. Uh, that is an event that seems to me well, it seems to me it dated from a much earlier period in American history. You know, the sort of thing that would shock a woman um, only in the 50s or 60s, but I guess 1985, sure, if she led a sheltered life. Anyway, together, Harper and Pryor have these lovely uh, dream scenes. Uh, several are a homage to the filmmaker Cocteau, um, Prior's reading Cocteau when he uh, slips into his dream state. That boudoir scene from Beauty and the Beast, you know, and all those arms reaching out with the uh, lights, the candles in Beauty and the Beast. The play, Angels in America, has uh, scores of references to other plays, films, books, uh, art, Homage to Tennessee Williams, even to Lewis Carroll through the looking glass. It isn't at all necessary to know what all these allusions are uh, in order to enjoy the film. Uh, it isn't uh, that it's too literate. Uh, they all fit in 
to the textures. Harper has a, a wonderful passage. Um, Tony Kushner writes about uh, the way our imaginations recycle everything, and uh, then it's served up new. <laughs> Actually, yes, I do like this synthesis. It's a kind of fin de siècle thing in which Tony Kushner just just takes the whole century and stirs it all up together. Uh, now, it does help if the audience knows who Ray Co- who Roy Roy Cohen was. Now, that's a real monster, folks. Uh, not a fantasy at all. Al Pacino does an over-the-top performance as Roy Cohen. A uh, man Joseph McCarthy depended on. Uh, a really cruel, red-baiting lawyer. A man who made it his personal responsibility to see to it in the 50s that Ethel Rosenberg went to the electric chair as well as her husband, Julius. They were accused, of course, of being Soviet spies. Mm. (laughs) Indeed, Angels in America gives us a kind of cracked cosmos, fragmented tale. It's about all these sad young men and um, at least one broken-hearted woman of our time. Uh, actually, yes, the men get more time than the women. Uh, Meryl Streep's mother, her uh, queen of denial, the uh, the mother of the central character, uh, I think she will develop in the second half. We'll see more of her, but she's dreadfully funny. <laughs> yes. What do you mean, you know? You know, you shouldn't be upset because your father didn't love you, right? You know, uh, it's ridiculous to worry about things like that. Anyway, the the basically sane character is a black male nurse. Um, he helps Pryor in the hospital when he's sick with AIDS. And uh, he he attempts, yes, to show us the difference between purple and mauve. Jeff Wright plays this wonderful part. Many people remember him as uh, Basquiat. That's a movie. Basquiat uh, is the name of a junkie artist. It was a film uh, a few years back. Um, Basquiat hangs out with Andy Warhol. And anyway, he has another role as a kind of uh, guide to Harper. Mary Louise Parker plays Harper, the Valium-addicted woeful wife of the Mormon Republican whose repressed homosexuality appeals to Roy Cohen. Mm-hmm. Roy, of course, is gay, but when he gets AIDS, uh, it's liver cancer. He explains to his doctor that only powerless men can be labeled homosexuals. Cohen explains to his Mormon minion that everyone who makes it in this life makes it because an older man helped him. I think that's that's the line that stayed with me the longest from the original production, yes. There's a scene in the bar, yes. How to be a good son, the Roman way to power. Roy Cohen loves the word familia. Mm-hmm. Actually, familia in Latin once meant all the slaves belonging to the household of one Roman citizen, pater, paternalism. It's the system, folks, and as we see on the news today, 
That system is sinking. <laughs> check out the 8th December New Yorker. If you want to check out the review, uh, it's a fairly sensible review. They're unkind to Emma Thompson, which I can never forgive, but, uh, it's 8th December, John Lair's review of Angels in America. It's called America Lost and Found. And right next to it, there is a review, a theater review of a new play by Tony Kirshner called Caroline or Change. I had hoped to tell you all about that, but look it up. It's a fabulous new musical by Tony Kushner. It's on Broadway. And you can find the review. It's called Underwater Blues. History and Heartbreak in Caroline or Change by John Lara. And it's in the 8th December New Yorker. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till Thursday morning at 8.20, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Take a ride through the world of reggae music aboard the Reggae Express. Tuesday evenings from 10 p.m. till midnight on 94.1 FM KPFA. Join DJs Ivier and Split Skankin for a showcase of all styles of reggae music from all over the world. Beginning with the 10 o'clock roadblock, Bob Marley and the Whalers recorded live. Interviews, giveaways, upcoming events, and requests. That's the Reggae Express, Tuesdays from 10 p.m. till midnight on 94.1 FM, KPFA.